the first rule of Raccoon Fight Club is that you do not talk about Raccoon Fight Club. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to episode seven of Wayward Stories. Wayward Stories is the podcast where we tell your stories of adventure and self-discovery. Um, tonight, I have just drugged myself in from yet another soccer practice. It appears I am now squarely, verifiably, a soccer dad. Is soccer dad a thing? Soccer mom is a thing. They're usually Karens. Is soccer dad a thing? If it's not a thing, I'm going to make it a thing. And I'm not going to be a Chad. I don't dig Karens and Chads. I'm not about that. Um, but anyway, yeah, this soccer thing is a blast. It's a lot of fun, but it's taken a lot of time. Um, I'm tired tonight, so I'm going to try to hold it together for you guys. Tonight, we are going to talk about one of my very favorite places on this entire planet. We are departing from the first six episodes where I had this giant story arc going on about my story. And this is just a regular old adventure story of mine. One of my favorite stories. This was a hike I did last year, an overnight hike that I did last year. And the area in which I did it is the Ponca Wilderness, the Buffalo National River. Um, for any of you who are uninitiated, we have a special gym right here in the state of Arkansas, in my home state. Um, actually, like, to be completely transparent, my home state is Oklahoma. I've lived in Arkansas for 20 years. Spent the first 20 years in Oklahoma, just across the line. I'm from this area. Um, but right here in my currently, current resident state of Arkansas, we have the Buffalo National River. The Buffalo National River is a really, really special place. Um, it's home to the highest sheer bluff and the highest or tallest waterfall between the Rocky Mountains and the Appalachians or the Appalachians, depending on what region of the country you're from and what colloquialism you prefer. Um, and it is an absolutely beautiful place to describe it. I think the best compliment I could give it is when you're standing or setting on the gravel bar on the river. Looking across the clear water, the clear, beautiful, green-tinted water at Big Bluff, towering above the river, 550 feet above the river. If you cut out that little section of the Ponca Wilderness and you dropped it into Yosemite Valley or you dropped it into Yellowstone or even somewhere in Big Sur, it wouldn't look out of place. That's probably the best compliment I could give it. It's not, don't take me wrong, it's not Yosemite Valley. It doesn't have six, seven, eight massive natural wonders like Upper and Lower Falls and El Cap and Half Dome. And it's not that, but it has, in its own right, if you set it into one of those areas, it would never look out of place. You wouldn't even question it. It's that beautiful. And, and that dramatic 
in many ways. Um, Big Bluff, as I mentioned, is 550 feet tall. The Buffalo National River was established as the nation's first national river in 1972. It's 135 miles of free-flowing river, one of the last remaining undammed rivers in the United States. Um, and it's pretty popular in its own right. Like I said, it's the Buffalo National River, so it is administered by the National Park Service. And it sees 800,000 visitors a year. Not too far shy of a million. What were we talking about in the previous episodes about Yosemite and Big Sur? Four to five million a year. Yeah, significantly less, but it's in the neighborhood. It's, it's, not, um, it's not unknown, though it is oft overlooked, in my opinion. Um, what we're going to be talking about tonight is, specifically, the fact that the Buffalo National River and the Ponca Wilderness did gain dark sky park status in 2019. For those of you who don't know what a dark sky park is, a dark sky park is an area that is ordained as such because it is so remote and has so little light pollution that you have basically unparalleled views of the sky because you don't have light pollution getting and hazing over the atmosphere and getting between you and the cosmos. Um, it is a beautiful, beautiful thing to be on the Buffalo River on, say, an overnight float or an overnight hike, which this was what the case was for me on this particular trip. I did, last year in August, I did with a buddy of mine, a good friend of mine, a hike down the Center Point Trail to the Goats Trail. To the goat, to the goat bluff. Okay, on Big Bluff, about 200 feet down from the top, at over 350 feet above the river, is a ledge, and there's a trail out on it. It's called the Goat Bluff Trail. Um, it's a very, or it's called the Goat Trail on Big Bluff. Let me, let me enunciate properly for all the nitpickers out there. It's the Goat Trail. On Big Bluff. Now, what you need to know about the Goat Trail on Big Bluff is that it is 350 feet above the river. There are places on the Goat Trail that are less than a meter wide, less than three feet wide. There's one that I remember specifically that is significantly less than that. I would say 18 inches or less. And, you know, your options are on your left side, rock wall, right side, quick trip to the grave. And that is not an exaggeration. Um, and because of this, it offers, you know, 350 feet above the river and the valley that it winds through, it offers an unparalleled view of the Buffalo River and the valley, the Ponca Wilderness, and also the southeastern, southwestern, and southern skies. It is a gorgeous place. But like I said, you got to <laughs> take the good with the bad. The good is amazing view. The bad is don't make a wrong step. Watch your footing. Um, I'm not going to comment on this because for some reason, this is a highly contentious subject on the old Facebook and other online forums, but about taking children out on the goat bluff. I'm not really going to comment on it except to say, if you are listening to this and you want to go hike down there, understand that there are places that are as little as 20, 18 to 24 inches wide and one false step is the end, period. People die there. It happens. Um, as a search and rescue guy, I would be remiss if I did not 
put that statement out in the disclaimer of it is a very serious thing to fall there. You, I, I, I'll tell you, I'll tell it to you this way as a father of a seven year old, she's not going out on goat bluff for a few years. And I will make the decision when I think she is mature enough and skilled enough in hiking and aware enough. And she's a good kid. She listens. She minds. She's not hyperactive. Not my kid's life. I'm not gambling with my kid's life. It's too serious. Um, because like I say, there are some very, very narrow places. It would be a leash situation. It should be. And some, you know, for me, it would be. Um, I'm just not going to do it myself for some time until I think she's ready and capable. Um, but it's a beautiful view up there. We'll get off of that little thing, but just be advised if you ever in, intend to take this trip. I think I already mentioned 800,000 visitors a year into Buffalo National River, the Ponca, Ponca Wilderness. Um, so it's, it's a thing that is out there and a lot of people will go there. You may just be hearing of this for the first time because it is a bit overlooked with all the things we have in the United States, like the Yosemites and the Smoky Mountains and, you know, the Appalachian Trail, the Appalachian Trail, um, the Pacific Rim Trail. There's a lot of big name things out there that everyone's got to put on their Instagram bucket list, right? But Buffalo National River, you won't be disappointed. So if you do come, I would have been remiss not to put in that disclaimer of what you're getting into if you want to hike out on the goat trail onto the face of Big Bluff. Um, it is a long hike in and out. If you're doing an out and back, it is 9.4 kilometers or 5.9 miles. Now, this is a combination of the Center Point Trail, which is what you will actually hike in on, and the Goat Bluff Trail combined. They are two different trails. There is an intersection. Key is the goat trail is quarter of a mile long, if I remember correctly, less than a half mile, somewhere in that area. It's the very end of this total 5.9 miles or 9.4 kilometers. You are going to gain, it's all downhill on the way in. You're cruising on the way in. It's a long hike and it's a little strenuous, but on the way in, not a big deal. The way out, on the way out, it is 328 meters of elevation gain. That's 1,076 feet over, what is that going to be, 2.9 miles, 2.85 miles, something like that. Six miles almost total in and out. So around three miles in, three miles out. Three miles out, over that three miles, you're going to gain 1,100 feet roughly of elevation. It um. There's not a good word that's suitable for all audiences here that I can use. Um to properly articulate how I feel about the hike out, but let's just say the hike out sucks. It's, it's, it's a real hike. Your booty's going to burn. Your thighs are going to burn. You're going to be sore for a couple of days. Totally worth it. Not trying to scare you off of it. Just preparing you for the hike. Um, honestly, if you hike it leaf on most of the hike, it's beautiful through the Ozark national forest or the, um, Ponca Wilderness area, but you're not going to get a lot of breathtaking views with leaf on until you get to the bluff, but the payoff at the end is worth it. I'm talking absolute amazing view. Um, now, because this is a dark spy, uh, sky park, this was my plan for this hike. What my, what my adventure was last year and the plan from the get was I will hike in 
mid-afternoon, set up a camp somewhere as close as I can, um, probably hike down and scout the bluff. So I kind of know if there's any really tight, dangerous situations before I'm tromping around on it in the dark with nothing but a flashlight, right? Um, and then come back, have dinner, and then head down to the bluff at sunset for pictures at sunset and then try to do some astrophotography. And I am, um, as I've mentioned previously, big-time amateur still photographer and do not have the money or equipment or technical skill for astrophotography, but in my little Canon T6 Rebel, you can get some pictures of the stars in the Milky Way in the best situations. You can get something. And I was experimenting with this. And for me, a lot of the things I go and do, guys, are to have a reason to go somewhere specifically and do something cool. Um, so my plan was to hike down, camp as close as I could to Big Bluff and stay on Big Bluff till late into the dark hours, into the night, trying to do some astrophotography of the Milky Way, which you're really in the heart of Milky Way viewing season when you're in August. Um, and so that's what we did. We hiked down. Got down and right at the intersection of the Goat Trail and Centerpoint Trail, where it's going to cut off and take you down to the bluff on the Goat Trail, there's the last couple of camping spots you can that are already established anyway that you can camp on. Beyond that, on the Goat Trail, there is no camping permitted. It is against regulation, rule, law. I'm not sure what specifically outlines that, but it is prohibited. That is the best way to put it. Um, so we picked, I think there was two spots there that it were kind of established. Picked the best of the two for hanging hammocks. We, we hung up our hammocks, got our campfire ring put together, got everything squared away, and then hiked down to the trail to do a little scouting. Like I said, just to make sure. I mean, it's a safety thing. Just a little pre-check. So we went down along the bluff. Oh my God, it's beautiful. Hung out with Ralph. Ralph is a um, rattlesnake that lives on the bluff. Most people see him. Um, apparently, he's fairly docile because everyone sees him. I saw him, and he don't really. He doesn't really attack people, best I know, I guess. But and there's not a lot of room on the bluff, guys. I mean, this isn't like Ralph's thirty feet away. It's there, you know. He's within a few feet of you when you spot him. Um, so be mindful of that. Unless somebody has done something to Ralph. There is a rattlesnake that just kicks it up there like it's a known thing. You know, you're coming down the trail. People are coming back out like, man, there's a rattlesnake on the bluff. Yeah, yeah, that's a thing. There's always a rattlesnake out there. Um, he's hiding most of the time, but just be aware. Ralph's down there. Um, and you, you have these uh, really cool trees. And I'm just going to pull this out of my tail right now because I can't remember. I think they're a juniper tree because um, I just went blank on it. I'm not going to stop to look it up. Um, that have been up there for ages and ages, and I'm not going to pull that out and butcher that stat either, but there's a number on it and they're several hundred years old. They're stunted in growth because of the way they're perched on the side of these rocky crags. It's, um, they're, they're kind of beautiful and picturesque in their own strange, arid, scraggly, scrawny kind of way perched up above the valley. Um, I got a couple of cool pictures of them actually. Um, but yeah, go out there and you scope out the bluff, hung out, talked to a few people coming and going, chatted about Ralph with one guy, um, talked to a couple of girls up there, um, very squarely hippie girls. And, um, I, this hippie thing is coming back and I'm here for it. Personally, I'm here for it. Like 
I kind of dig the vibe and they, they kind of tend to pop up everywhere. I find myself, you know, it's kind of intertwined with nature as it were, like, and, and getting out. But so we, we talked to them for a while and then we hiked back up, give ourselves a break. Cause it was hot. It was August y'all. It was very August and August in Arkansas is a hot, hot place to be with the humidity. Now people argue about this. I've been in Flagstaff. I've been in Phoenix guys. I will having experienced both worlds. I will take 115 degrees in Arizona with 0% humidity all day long over Arkansas at 99 with 80% humidity. One of them will kill you a lot faster and is more miserable to be in from experience. Just telling you, but we had sweated profusely that day on the way in. So we're like, let's then the bluff face is, face is really hot. The sun's beating on it when you're in mid afternoon and the rocks have heated up. Like it's kind of like being in an asphalt parking lot in the summer. It's very hot. So we went back up to cool off and try to get something together for dinner and uh, got that done while we were up there getting dinner together and kind of kind of cooling down, talked to several people coming along. I was surprised by how many people were like, oh, man, this is a great idea. Camp, hike in and stay the night. Never thought of that for this particular trail. I mean, it's not really an overnight trail. You know, it's not a part of the Highland Network or anything like that. It is. It's six miles long. You can make it longer. Sure. Um, but no one, a lot of people seem kind of surprised by it and thought it was a really cool idea. That one of my favorite things, guys, you're going to hear me say this 1 million times over the course of me making this podcast for however long I make it. My favorite parts are meeting the people out there and getting to know new people. And it's not hard. A smile and a, Hey, how are you today? As they pass on the trail and you will have a new friend. Eight out of ten times, promise you. Um, so we hung out, talked to people, anyway, got ready to go down around sunset. Timed it out, headed down for sunset. There was only one person left on the bluff coming up on sunset. They hung around for a minute, and then they beat it. They wanted to get out before dark. See, that was kind of the beauty of this plan, is if we camp there, not only can we get sunset and not have to hike out in the dark, we can also do some dark sky astrophotography in my very amateur low rent equipment kind of way. Um, so we did, we got down there, checked out the bluff, walked back and forth, said hi to Ralph and set up, took some pretty decent pictures of sunset. Didn't have any clouds. I was disappointed in that. It's like, that's the, the yin and the yang of that whole situation. When you're going for astrophotography, you don't want any clouds, but if you're going for sunset, you want clouds. Clouds are where you get the awe inspiring sunsets. You have to have them up there to provide that contrast and something to turn pink and purple and d deep blue and deep red. Um, but then that'll kill you for the astrophotography. And that night, it worked out for the best because what I specifically went for was the astrophotography. Take my shot at the Milky Way. Um, but Sunset was a little bit of a flop on my end. At least out of me and my little Canon Rebel thing, The my hiking partner, she had like the newest Android phone. And this is a thing guys that I don't know what to do with. I don't know how to place this in my mind and deal with it. The new phones, Androids and iPhones, and I have one myself, iPhone. They're taking better pictures than I can take 
the resolution's not quite there. It's not quite as much data, as many pixels to work with. But the overall step back view of a picture taken with her phone that night of the sunset, I mean, it made what I took look stupid. And I'm not a complete noob. If I'd say I'm an amateur, but I mean, I can take a sunset like anyone can take a sunset. I didn't get one that night worth a dang. And her phone had some nice pictures of the sunset. And I'm just not sure what to do with this as someone who wants to view photography as a bit of an art that is a mixture of art and science. And you can now just like in the phone you're going to buy anyway, point and click. And it looks better than what I can pull off with my $500 little camera setup. That just, it frustrates me to no end. Um, but at the same time, there's the principalistic argument, the philosophical argument there of, but they're still taking the picture. They're there doing it. They're in the situation. They're still, oh, some people are still framing it out. They're still choosing their subject matter and putting together a well-composed picture. So, I mean, like, I mean, yeah, the medium is the medium. What is, you know, what difference does the tool you use make? So it's like this weird no man's land for me. But anyway, off of that little rabbit hole, back onto the main trail. Um, set up and watching sunset over the valley, over the Buffalo River. And in the way that the valley curves, you've got a horseshoe bend going on in the river coming at you, below you, and then turning away from you. It's very, very peaceful and grounding. It is a very centering experience to set in the quiet at sunset, especially like that night, everyone bailed except for she and I. And we sat there on the bluff in silence, except for camera shutter. That's the only thing you could hear every so often was the click of a camera shutter. And then the locusts start all of the critters of the night start as it starts to get dark and the sky gets darker and darker. And I mean, there's like a couple of hour window here where there's nothing happening, right? Because it's not quite dark enough for any kind of astro until you get two, three hours beyond dark, at least for me and my simple setup and lack of equipment. Um, so sunset happens and you're just kind of sitting there for two or three hours. And it was nice. I mean, it was nice. Just looking over the valley, watching the stars start to appear. Um, there was going to be a moon that night, but it was a late rise moon. So that worked out great as well. Um, and it was just absolutely beautiful, absolutely serene, absolutely peaceful and calming. Um, it was a beautiful, beautiful night for it. And then gets dark enough and you start taking pictures. And for me, it's a process of trial and error. I know generally where I want to be on the shutter, on the aperture, on the exposure, you know, all the different things on the ISO, um, pull all the filters off, just clean lens shot at the sky. And you just start for me. I just start messing around. I start going with it. I go wide open ISO at like 6,400. See what happens. See what it looks like. 30 second exposures, which 23 or 24 seconds is generally about as long as you can leave it open, leave the shutter open, um, without starting to get a little bit of a blur in the star trails. 
you know, because the earth is rotating really fast. And but beyond 23, 24 seconds, you start to see that tail appear. But for me, I have good luck with the 30 second exposures on the Astro. Now, granted, my Astro is not amazing stuff that'll drop your jaw, but this, the stars are still pretty tack sharp at 30 seconds. And that's, I need all of that 30 seconds with my little camera setup. And again, lack of, you know, accessories to pull these off, pull off night shots. And I get some pretty neat shots of the Milky Way. Um, so anyway, finally locate the Milky Way. You know, you take some test shots of the sky. Once it gets dark enough, you can pick it out with your naked eye up there on the Buffalo River. Again, dark sky park status. Once I've located the Milky Way, I start playing with the exposure, start playing with um, the length of the shutter, etc., etc., the aperture. And what I found that night, the best shots I got were... 4.2, 3.5 is wide open for my camera. I was getting the actual best results. Contrast to the Milky Way at 4.2, ISO at like 3200, like actually reeling it in a little bit to let a little bit less light in comparatively to the 6400. Um, and at 30 seconds. And I took, I don't know, 200 shots that night. Boy, those are nights that are, the editing is not so much fun. Looking through... 200 pictures that are nearly identical, trying to find the one that's got the best contrast or the best color or the best sharpness in it. Um, but I did pull one shot out of that night that made everything, the hike in and then everything that is about to occur in the hereafter, it's a little foreshadowing for you, made all of it worth it. To me, again, it's not a jaw dropper. You know, it's not multiple stacked images with, you know, the foreground exposed with bright light composited in over 10, 20 second exposures of the Milky Way and all composited into one photograph. Like that's not my forte in photography at this moment, maybe someday, but I don't have time for that right now. I have a different way of seeing the world. It's not knocking on the people that do it because you guys that do that, I love your pictures. I wish that there were an easier way for me to pull them off. I would give, I mean, you could take my spleen with a plastic spoon and no anesthetic if I could just go out and take pictures like that. But it's a much more involved process and most of the other things I do, like this podcast, my YouTube channel, all that stuff, that takes up all my involved processes. Um, but you guys, not knocking you. I'm all about what you're doing out there. Um, but for me, it's not really, it is an option, but not one I'm choosing at this point in life. But so it's not a jaw dropper, but it is. You can see the Milky Way. You can see all the speckly, shiny stars throughout the Milky Way. But like the best part of it is, is at the very end of the exposure, a shooting star started to come into frame right through the center of the Milky Way. So I've got a little shooting star with a tail starting into the shot. For me, that made it all worth it that night. That was the picture I was after. The shooting star was just, gosh, it was just icing on the cake. And again, if I put it out there on the Instagram, which I have before, but if I put it out there on Instagram and like sky porn or something, it's not going to get a whole lot of uh, hearts. It's just not there with what the people, professionals, and not even professionals, just really good amateurs that focus on Astro. It's not par with that. It's just not. But for me, totally worth it totally what I was after and made me happy. Now, 
I foreshadowed that some things, some events occurred after that point in the night that in some situations may have made that trip miserable. And to be fair and truthful, it was pretty miserable, but it was still worth it. Still something I would do again. And still something that I suggest to any of you that maybe you should consider doing. But anyway, so let's just get to it. So we go back up. We get off the bluff. Two flashlights working together, making sure we're doing this safely. Because you are literally pitch black 350 feet to the river. In places, very tight window. Very low tolerance for mistakes. Um... Get back up to camp, get the fire stoked up, get like, I think that night we actually took some cans of beef stew because it was such a short hike. Took a can of beef stew a piece or something, threw it in the fire, you know, cracked the cap on it, set it next to the fire, let it warm up, had a hot meal, which was so awesome compared to like trail mix or a protein bar or anything like that after a day like that where you've expended a billion calories in the hot sun, there was nothing quite like hot beef stew. And I don't know how to explain that, but I was starving and it was amazing. Um, and we cleaned up, zipped everything up in Ziploc bags, put it all in our backpacks, chilled out around the fire for a while, just talked, chatted, then jumped into the old hammock and we're swinging to sleep. And first and foremost, I was already kind of miserable because I had sweated a ton it was a hot day. I had expended a lot of energy and I had dropped a lot of sweat and I was sticky and it was bad. But the temperature dropped overnight. There was something of a cold front that came through, did not bring storms or rain, but it did bring a significant temperature decrease, which also is going to drop up there because you're on the top of a ridge in that very particular area. At the bottom of the valley, there's a lot of airflow. And it got pretty dang cold that night. Well, I hiked in for a summer overnight hike with nothing but a sleeping bag liner to cover myself in. And with that like dried sweat all over me and that cold, cold wind blowing and humming through my hammock, I was, I was in rough shape that night. I was not having a good night to start with as far as that's concerned. And then nigh on, I would say we were up on the bluff till 1230 or 1. Um, then nigh on say two o'clock, just when I'd finally overcome how miserable I was. And I think I was literally in that phase right between wake and sleep where sometimes you get sleep paralysis and all of a sudden a ruckus was raised across the valley and there was like screaming and there was like hissing and it was going down y'all. And it was going down like 15 feet from my head. So I'm trying, well, the two of us are trying to wrestle our way loose out of this double hammock, trying to find a flashlight, which is actually quite simply placed in the little pocket hanging off the double hammock, but two humans tangled in a hammock, trying to get a flashlight out in the middle of the night in the dark when all hell has broken loose in your camp where there should be no one or anything else making noises that are otherworldly and ungodly. It was a little bit of a cluster, okay? But finally, I get my hands on a flashlight. Finally, I get it turned on and shine the flashlight into the dark by the smoldering fire that had burned down to not produce much light and see 
that there is a raccoon battle royale going down. And I'm talking, these raccoons were throwing it, man. Like, there was fisticuffs. One, one raccoon was getting murdered. She was catching all the paws. It was brutal. And it the screams sounded like human beings. And then you hear this noise in the distance. And it sounds like, shh, shh. And you go back. And I finally get my light over there. And one of the raccoons had taken advantage of the opportunity of the gang fight that was happening in the middle of camp. And had grabbed my partner's backpack by the drag handle and was dragging it like two feet at a time into the woods that was the noise and then that was it for that like people were coming out of hammocks full speed because that backpack was not disappearing into the woods so get out stop raccoon battle royale the (laughs) rumble in the jungle we put an end to that and kind of ran him off, except for one, the really big one that was pulling the backpack. He was one of the biggest raccoons I've ever seen. He could have passed for like a medium-sized dog. We called him Richard because Richard was really, really a Richard. He kept coming back and trying to screw with stuff over and over and over again. So Richard, it keeps prowling around camp while we're trying to get everything back together. We're trying to figure out why are they after our backpacks because... I'm not worried about black bears in Arkansas, though we have them. They're not a concern to me. But everything was sealed up for wildlife. I mean, God, guys, I've had squirrels and raccoons previously in camps take things apart and tear open sacks of bread, whatever. Like, there can't be any smell escaping. So we went prepared for this. The trash was, you know, put into Ziploc bags and sealed off. I mean, as airtight as it can get. We also had water bags that we, at least one, because it should be airtight, that we put everything into. What were they smelling? I don't know. Was there like a freaking stray Slim Jim chunk or a, a peanut or something in the bottom of one of the bags, maybe? I don't know. I still don't know why. But they were about those bags. And Richard just kept, like, stalking around camp. So finally, we got all of that squared away. Cag- <sighs> Lay back down, got the bags, hung up on tree as best we could, pulled out the paracord, strung them up as best we could, get back into the hammock, miserable yet again, still freezing. It's only getting colder and windier as the night progresses, and I'm in <laughs> basketball shorts and a t-shirt, soaking wet and sweat, well, dried sweat, and trying to get warmed up and finally get almost, almost, possibly, back to sleep and suddenly in the distance you hear (laughs) then came the hogs let me tell you guys if you're not familiar with feral hogs we have more than our share in the state of arkansas as a matter of fact the university of arkansas mascot it's a feral hog If you don't know about feral hogs, you clearly don't live in the South because we are overran with feral hogs in the South. Here's what you need to know about feral hogs. They will kill you hard. Like, they will kill you to death. They will kill you and then keep killing you. Everybody knows. Even the manliest man hunter you will ever come across, if you say, I ran into hogs in the woods, they'll go, oh man, hogs will mess you up. 
because they will. Um, some interesting notes on feral hogs. I never knew this until I actually researched about them a little bit before I started this episode. Feral hogs are an invasive species to North America. They were introduced by Hernando de Soto in the 1500s. And they've just been tearing up Jack ever since. And like, as a matter of fact, somebody at a, at a county extension office here in the state of Arkansas, I think it was like 2013 or 16, something like that, an article I found, said basically the war against feral hogs in Arkansas is World War III. Like, they're to the point of like, we have to like do mass extermination or we're not going to have crops anymore. Like the hunting, the regulatory hunting that goes on every year during hunting season, it's not enough. It's not even close to enough. And they can reproduce like like rabbits reproduce, apparently. I, when they're six months old, they're able to reproduce again. Like they're apparently a huge problem. But what you need to know is they will tear you up. So being alone three miles from the closest anything in nothing but hammocks, Feral hogs are a legitimate concern. Okay. So sat down, got out of the hammock and said, that's it. There is no sleep tonight for me. The night's almost gone anyway. So I stoked the fire as high as I could a to try to ward off hogs and B to try to keep myself warm and just sat there quite miserably staring at the fire until dawn, listening to the hogs root and grunt and snort in the distance. Um, like, here's the thing about feral hogs, like, to hammer home the point how serious of a situation this is, they can run 25 miles an hour, which rules out you getting away, to be honest. And when they charge, they do, like, surprise attack charges. So the odds of you even be able to clamber up a tree are not great. Get this, in, wild ho- in recorded wild hog attacks on human beings, 15% mortality rate for the human like you have a 15% chance. That's way more than I want to hear. One and a half out of 10 attacks, somebody dies. Um, They're for real. And like on that note, like I'm going to put this in here because as it is, we already know, people in the South already know, you should be aware of wild hogs and the situation that you can find yourself in. They can tear you up. Um, so I found online at the restlessbackpacker.com a, uh, basically how to survive a hog attack. So I'm putting it in here. It's going in because I didn't know this stuff. I know bear attacks, like all of us hikers and outdoorsmen and doorsmen and women, we know like how to survive or not how to survive the best way to try what you need to do in a grizzly attack, what to do, you know, in a mountain lion attack. These are all things that you learn. Nobody ever talks about a wild hog attack. And they're a very real threat anywhere in the South. Um, And apparently even California now, as I learned last night. But anyway, here are the bullet points on RestlessBackpacker.com if you want to source this for how to survive a hog attack. Number one, remain calm. Good luck with that. Number two, keep a safe distance. Again, if you're being attacked, the safe distance is out the window. Um, Three, slowly back away from the boar. And I will attest to this, not with a boar but especially with dogs, and apparently this is true of most wild animals, don't turn your back on them. Y'all, I've been bitten 14 times now in my three years delivering packages, and what I've learned is even the most aggressive dog, almost all of them, if you will stay facing them, even if you're retreating, if you're facing them, 
they're way less, they're way more hesitant to actually come after you if you're facing them. So back away slowly from the wild boar. If you have time, try to reach higher ground, such as a boulder car, possibly even climb a tree. But please consider that this might be hard to apply due to the closeness and speed of a wild boar surprise charge. When attacked, do everything in your power to keep your footing. Try to sidestep them quickly. I assume this is like bull matador situation, sidestep, kind of like, you know, bullfighters do. Um, to avoid getting swung by its tusk. And I mean, again, Google a feral hog and look at those tusks. They will jack you up. Um, and if all above all else fails, if all the above fails, fight back with whatever is available at hand. Sticks, your bare hands, a knife, a gun, anything until the mauling ends. Even when attacked, try to keep your standing position by any means possible as you can suffer greater injuries once down because they will continue to attack you and then they will trample you after they've attacked you and have you on the ground. They want you to die. Apparently the rules are the same, kind of like with a grizzly bear more than anything, or a black bear especially. Or a grizzly bear especially, but also like black bears. When are black bears dangerous? When you get between a mother and her cubs, right? This is apparently a very similar situation. Hogs are territorial. If you if they've got babies, a lot more aggressive, a lot more protective of what they have. So just be aware of the little hog situation. Um, so anyway, I'm going to tell you all that and get to, you know, kind of the anticlimactic ending, which was setting up until dawn. And I'm talking first light, we bolted. And when I say first light, I mean, it was still dark in the woods, but the sky started to lighten up. Turned on the flashlights, we were packed up and we were rolling because we were done with that night and that hike. 2.9 miles out at six in the morning on no sleep. One of the, on an elevation gain of 1,076 feet over the 2.9 miles, that was a miserable hike. I just, there's no other way to paint it. That was a miserable hike. Got almost to the top and the hogs returned. Actually saw four or five of them cross the trail in front of me, along with many deer. We saw deer that night too, coming out. Also, when you're the first person out at 6 a.m. or in on any trail, you're the chief spider web catcher in charge of the charge of the universe anyway so i'm catching all these webs the deer coming and going they're nice but then the hogs and the hogs again you're watching them because you don't want to get <laughs> mauled by a hog because that's a very bad situation um but we finally got out no hog mauling um covered in spider webs but no hog mauling totally over that hike and that last 12 to 16 hours, however long it was. Um, it was an interesting night. Spent the night down there. Got a great picture of the Milky Way by my standards of taking photography, taking photographs anyway. Um, had a great dinner. And then, you know, trod across Hell's Acres for the next six hours of the night. Um, it it was it was interesting. Um, I don't want you to. I want to encourage you all to go do this though. I want you all to go see the goat trail on Big Bluff. I want you all to go hike down the Center Point Trail. I want you all to go do this hike. Don't be deterred by the bad night I had. Like there are lessons that could be learned. Okay, 
from a night like I had. One, go with a little bit more preparation for sleeping to be a little bit warmer. Number two, big lesson I learned. This is when I discovered body wipes. Um, I remembered many years ago, like in 2008 and nine, on a TV show I worked on, we covered the Honubi, spelled Honobia, but I promise you I'm from Southeast Oklahoma. It's pronounced Honubi. Honubi Bigfoot Festival for this TV show on the fringe. Um, and we were there for three days staying in like an old Boy Scout camp. They had running water, but it was a hard nope. Those showers, that was a hard nope. That was like Nightmare on Helm Street type of stuff. It was just terrifying and it looked like you would be filthier when you came out and just nobody was there for it. We it wasn't going to happen. We bathed. We went four dudes, okay? Four dudes being really stinky dudes after three days. I think it was three days we were down there camping. It was bad. We were bathing with baby wipes. So anyway, on this trip, I remembered this and I started Googling because again, we're into the 2020s, y'all. It's everything's different now. You know, we got tech and innovations and stuff coming out our ears. So I bet they make wipes that are made for like cleaning your body while you're camping or hiking or for soldiers that are deployed in the field in a hot zone. Like sure enough, they do. And they're amazing. I've tried them since then. Just be advised. Body wipes, pick your brand. I don't know what's best. I've only bought one kind and tried one kind and it worked great. It helps get this, the dried sweat off of, off of you, et cetera, et cetera. So that was the second lesson I learned that night. And the third lesson I learned from this whole ordeal, which is probably the most important lesson that I learned from it, is the first rule of Raccoon Fight Club is that you do not talk about Raccoon Fight Club. I'm going to have to watch my back now because I've done talked about it, told the whole world. Um, but yeah, overall, don't want to deter you. I want you to make this trip. I want you to see this beautiful, often overlooked, beautiful gym that we have right here in my current state of residence, Arkansas, the Buffalo National River, Big Bluff, the Goat Trail, Ponca Wilderness, and there's so much more in that area for you to go see. Those are going to be in future episodes. There's so much there. I want you to go see it. Do not be deterred by my bad night. Be entertained by it. Um, that was the goal of telling the story tonight was to entertain you, not to turn you off of the Buffalo National River because it is an amazing place that I hope you will all go. Um, and that pretty much wraps up the story that I have to tell tonight. Um, and I think I've run on close to an hour now, which is where we're kind of hanging out right now with these episodes. So we will wrap this up. I want to thank you all again for joining me on the Wayward Stories podcast. This podcast is dedicated to telling your story. So far, we've only told mine because I got to get you guys writing stories in. Send them to mywaywardstory at gmail.com or Go over to the website at waywardstories.com. You can submit it through the contact form there. And also, check out photo galleries. You can probably see that big bluff picture I'm talking about. You know what? I bet that's not on there. I've got to update the photo galleries. Anyway, check out photo galleries. Um, check out Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Links to everything. Patreon.com. If you want to go to Patreon and support the show at any level of anything, you would totally be helping us out and keeping the lights on and know this 20% of all proceeds from Patreons to the show will always go to a charity every single month. And, um, yeah, 
and just check out everything you can and get those stories sent in to me. Um, I don't think I have anything else to cover tonight. Take a moment here to awkwardly look at my list of things to always point out at the end of the show. The wrap-up sheet. Now, we got it all. WaywardStories.com and send your story to mywaywardstory at gmail.com. I'm glad you were here again tonight. I look forward to seeing you next week. Until then, be good to each other and go out there and do something good in the world. We here at Streo 119 would like to remind all of you out there listening, wherever you might be, that though the hill might be steep and the trail be rocky, the mountaintop awaits. Carry on.